It would be difficult to find someone whose life has not been affected in some form or another by suicide. My best friend growing up, Mike Paul, committed suicide after high school. I myself have gone through moments in my life where the thought of death sounded better than the thought of life. If you've ever been a part of a conversation around suicide and looked online for support, most likely you're one of the six million people that has come across Mark Hennig, who as a teenager, he was just overwhelmed by depression and anxiety and this overwhelm led to increasingly dangerous suicide attempts. One night he climbed onto a bridge over an overpass. And what happened next became the subject of a TED talk that has propelled Mark into a world of support and conversation that, have, that has saved millions of lives. This is my conversation with the author of So-Called Normal, Mark Hennick. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. One of the many, many intriguing aspects of your TED Talk was when you brought up the concept of commit. Uh, you're a clinician, so when when we see the word commit, you took um, you took a counter position to that concept. Why? What what was it about committing suicide? Well, I mean, here in Canada, well, actually, no. Let me start with the grammatical side. People right. will come back and say, you know, there, there's other phrases, commit to quit smoking. Right. But you're not saying commit to suicide. You're saying commit suicide. The very clear grammatical um, uh, implication is that you're saying that it's a crime uh, because you commit murder, you commit arson, you commit rape. That's what commission is generally, if you want to stay with, with what's common or common language, that's how the word commit is generally used. However, uh, if you then take that, that uh, grammar quibble and move it into the legal, uh, legal area uh, here in Canada where I'm based, suicide hasn't been a crime since the early 1970s in most jurisdictions across the United States. In fact, around the world with a few pockets uh, uh, where it still is, suicide is not a crime. So you actually can't commit it. <laughs> so, so I think that, that when you suggest that implicitly, um, unconsciously when you say commit suicide, and it's often unintentional just because it is the way that people normally talk, the implication is that you're doing something bad. You're doing something wrong, that there's a moral judgment, uh, that there's a potential criminal judgment in the idea of committing suicide. Uh, and suicide is not a crime. It's a public health crisis. It's the result of a terminal mental illness, I believe. Um, but it's anything but a crime. We need to get away from this uh, old, I think, potentially religiously or moralistic um, uh, view that people who die by suicide are going to go to hell or that they're bad people or that there's something wrong with them in that way. I don't think that's helpful. There's some interesting dichotomies to uh, teen suicide that are going on. Number one, it is certainly uh, a, a very popular conversation to have. There are more support systems in place than ever before. It is not um, it is not shied away from like it was in the 70s and 80s. 
Yet the numbers now, in, and I'll say now in 2002, eight years ago is at the time of this recording, the numbers now are as low as it was in the 70s, with the peak being in 1994. And yet it seems to be much more in our in our face, in our grill. The moment we moved our facility up to Estes Park, when the when the community found out we were here, that was the first thing we have. Have you heard about our the the suicidal wave that came through the mm-hmm. Estes Park high schools and everything? And there were a, you know, a certain amount of kids that because of this certain event, and then there became the copycat suicides and the suicide option showed up and the suicide culture showed up. Yet the numbers are still lower. What's going on in your mind with this with this dichotomy? Well, I think certainly uh, more people talking openly uh, is helping to raise awareness. And the whole point of mental health awareness and specifically suicide awareness is to increase help-seeking behavior. We're not we're not just telling the story for the sake of telling the story. I mean, some people are, but um, I think you have to know. And and we we learn this. Uh, any clinician would know this. Hopefully, many public speakers, but not everybody. You have to know who you're telling your story for and why. What's the purpose of of your disclosure? Uh, and if it's just, a, can I swear on the, on your show? Absolutely. Let okay. it rip. If it's just to work your own shit out, then that's not the right reason to do it. There are people that you can do that for. And look, I want to say too, my advocacy has been inextricably tied to my recovery. I wouldn't have recovered had I not become an advocate. It, it built a purpose for me. But there's a right way and a wrong way to talk about suicide. Uh, if you're if you're if you're just dumping a bunch of unprocessed trauma on other people, that's not really raising awareness. It, it could actually be quite dangerous. Um, so I think though that the conversation, generally speaking, uh, has been helpful. It has evolved. If you look at the way uh, Kurt Cobain's suicide was covered in the media, and compare that to Robin Williams or Anthony Bourdain. Uh, uh, um, or Kate Spade, for that matter, three, you know, in, in relatively quick succession, uh, Robin Williams quite a bit earlier. Uh, anyway, I think if you compare the the um, coverage of those, uh, there was no question, it seems, in the research that Kurt Cobain's suicide led to so-called copycat suicides or suicide contagion. Whereas uh, with the Robin Williams stuff, that may have happened too, but the nature of the reporting was qualitatively different. There was more references to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, as soon as one of the major news broadcasters was caught with a helicopter above his house uh, and called on it on social media, they pulled it because that's the definition of sensationalism, of course, is to be buzzing somebody's house and family with a helicopter. Um, and then the awareness as well of people sharing stories and celebrating his life, even though he died in such a tragic way. So I think all of that is what has contributed um, to improving suicide awareness. Now, I will say, however, if you look at the numbers, generally speaking, I think I, I saw just not too too long ago that, there, that the, the overall suicide rate has been increasing for 13 years straight. Um, so we're still not quite moving the needle uh, in a meaningful way. And um, I'm reminded of Tom, Dr. Tom Insull who came out a few years ago after he left the, um, uh, was it the National Institute of Mental Health that he was with? Anyway, he came out and said that they've been banging this drum of, of uh, biological determinism and brain-based care and, and uh, medical model uh, so hard for 13 years and investing heavily in that kind of intervention. And that wasn't taking down the suicide rate. It wasn't helping recovery rates. So I think there's something there too. And when you look at those two things, that conversation seemed to help 
um, more prescriptions, more hospital beds, more um, objective uh, treatments uh, don't seem to be really helping people all that much. It's interesting to your point um, that while it looks like since the 70s, teen numbers have spiked and then returned to their average as it were and and remember we're 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 talking about data and analytics when we're when we're really talking about human lives mm-hmm. and and children suffering and adult suffering and you're right the numbers have gone through a spike and the spike has not been with kids it has been with the uh, the an older generation however none of these numbers has taken into account what's taken place in 2020 with the pandemic where the 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 beginning numbers, the the, uh, the 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 call data that has come in, they're showing a national average a rise of forty seven percent in calls, and some crisis lines showing three hundred percent of increase in calls. Now, again, these calls are a good thing because these are people resourcing, uh, uh, gathering support, and following up on this social media where you just see out of the blue, someone will post the national hotline number and then everybody's sharing it and and it's getting millions and millions of views. So we've got this, we're on a trend that by and large, uh, the support and resourcing to people who are struggling is going, it's better. It's better than it was. So I think that is, again, to your point, I have a question about as I was reading in uh, on on your website, uh, which I wanna I wanna say correctly, it's uh, markhanick.com. Did I say your last name right? Yep, you got it. Markhanick.com. Right out of the gate on the page about you, it talks about Amazon products that were supporting. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 suicide thing that you took a stand against and were very successful with. And it reminded me of being a kid and playing Dungeons and Dragons. You're talking to an old metalhead. So there was, you know, Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne, both who got hauled into court for, uh, you know, Judas Priest and their suicide solution song and the lyrics that he had to sing in court. Um, the, the Werther effect. Is what we're talking about. What were these products that you took a stand against? And then again, recently, uh, 13 Reasons Why. Netflix came under fire for the TV show. I never watched it, but I listened to the children in our facility completely just rake it across the coal saying, how could they? Mm-hmm. So dealing with the Werther effect where we're saying, you know, we're, we're displacing the blame, yet what were those products? Why did you take a stand? And where do we draw the line of responsibility of learning about true mental health issues and holding outside influences response? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's always a, a fine balance. But with respect to the Amazon thing, that's something that was actually brought to my attention by a young girl, a young woman in uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, her name is Maggie Harder, and she had um, uh, been talking about this and and uh, flagged these shirts. They were just T-shirts, uh, silly, cheap little things, but they had uh, depicted images of uh, people or figures hanging by their neck, and then it had some sort of uh, crude caption about that person dying by suicide. Um, for me, when I got involved, I started up this uh, change.org petition. It ended up getting tens of thousands of signatures. Uh, we sent it off to Amazon. They had the products removed. It, for me, uh, contributed yet another data point uh, to this idea that suicide is funny, uh, that su- 
suicide is uh, impersonal, that it doesn't impact people. The reality is, look, more than 10,000 people, uh, uh, or uh, uh, my apologies, more than 40,000 people every year in the United States die by suicide. And each one of those, uh, probably 10 to 25 people have attempted and every one of those have family members that are deeply impacted by this. So if any of those millions and millions of people are just casually browsing through Amazon looking for their their diapers or their whatever it else is they're buying, and for some reason they see these really insensitive images, that goes beyond free speech. You know, I'm not an opponent of free speech. Say what you want, but also we're part of a society. You don't live in a silo. We do have a duty to care uh, for those who are around us. And if there is something so unnecessary as showing a figure hanging by its neck and mocking suicide, that doesn't that doesn't build up your free speech. That doesn't make you a really, you know, that doesn't make you anything. It's needless. Uh, so take it down. And likewise, it was true. It was a bit different in character, I guess, uh, for 13 Reasons Why. I spoke out in a, an article I wrote for CNN, uh, which ended up uh, going viral itself, um, about the motivations in some ways that I found repellent uh, for 13 Reasons Why. I think it was being cast as and set up as um, this triumph of mental health and suicide awareness. Meanwhile, they graphically depict a young girl ending her life. Uh, that wasn't even in the original source material. Uh, and every mental health professional, it was almost like the series creators uh, drew, uh, asked mental health professionals what not to do and then did that. Like it was just such an affront. And clearly it seemed to me they were counting on the controversy uh, to to build up their their numbers, their their viewership numbers, because people are going to be attracted to something controversial. That to me was so repellent as a as a suicide prevention advocate that it's the definition of sensationalization uh, and and other problematic aspects of that storyline. So I think both of those two things uh, speak to this idea that these are both cultural artifacts that speak to where we are as a, as a society, what people are thinking, what people find funny or interesting. And I think it's our job as advocates to be countercultural. You know, this was part of the whole motivation for why I wanted to do the TED Talk, which went on to get millions and millions of views. It started with an argument on Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I, I was working as a clinician. I was reading the Wikipedia page about suicide. I noticed that it said commit suicide all through the article. Uh, as an advocate and as a as a person who's reasonably well-read in suicide, that's not really appropriate language. People don't commit suicide. People commit crimes. That's the way that it's used. So I made those edits. They got reverted back. And then we got into an argument on the uh, talk page on the Wikipedia site, on the Wikipedia page for suicide. And the overwhelming uh, majority of people said, you know what? It might not be grammatically correct. Uh, it might not be academically or clinically correct or legally correct but it's common. And I thought, ew, why, why would we choose what's common over what's right? Just because saying commit suicide is more common than die by suicide, it's not accurate and it could be hurtful. So why wouldn't we instead favor truth over commonality? And that's really what fired me up to do the, the TED Talk. When you talk about your uh, your experience, your attempts, do you, um, is there, is there a, how's that, how do I want to say this? Is there a tangible reliving of the experience or have you killed the secret so much that you can actually mm -hmm. step out and speak of this as a witness? 
You know, I think I can do both. And I, I've thought a lot about this over the years that that I think when I did the TEDx talk originally, um, you know, I had already been working as a clinician. I'd already shared my story a few times, but I absolutely re-traumatized myself in the preparation of that talk. You know, we, 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 we did... Uh, six months of, of writing and rewriting. And, and then I got on stage and just said what I was going to say anyway. Like I didn't, <laughs> I'm glad I did the preparation, but I just went out there and was myself. Uh, I forgot big chunks of what I wrote. So I just kind of improv, improved parts of it. Um, but I, I, I think that I absolutely did um, re-traumatize myself in some ways because you have to really do the work to get in a good spot to share your story. Um, that said, however, um, you know, I, I speak a lot and now mostly virtually, of course, and I've kind of likened it to this way of being able to be authentically in it again. I think you're doing, I would be doing my audiences a disservice if I just kind of dispassionately told my story as though it wasn't mine. But where it's become really important for me is that I'm then able to kind of step back out of the water again. And that's the skill, you know, to be able to go in it and live it and be fully in it. You know, if you're going to be in it, be in it. But then also knowing how to pull yourself back out again. I think that's a skill that I really practiced and honed over the years. And now I can go and dump it all out on stage or in front of a camera. Uh, but then when I leave, I, I can put it back away again. And I'm really grateful for that as well, that I've, that I've developed that skill. You were, if I, if I can now jump back to your own personal experience, uh, because again, as I was, as I was listening to your Ted talk, there was a moment in your conversation where I believe you showed us the two sides of man and what it's like to be stuck in the middle of them. And that was standing on the bridge and, uh, someone hearing the words, jump, you coward. That that certainly is the the darker, shadowy, evil side of mankind. And yet, in the next moment, they say that someone in a brown jacket pulled you off the ledge. Yeah. And so there we have. It's just like you're is there. You were caught between an angel and a demon, for lack of a better description. And I I have to know just for my own curiosity. Did you ever find out who the man in the brown jacket was? Yeah, you know, that was a that was a really pivotal moment for me for a lot of reasons. I mean, I'm there on the edge of the bridge, this guy on the sideline shouts out for me to jump. I let go and start to fall. And then this other stranger in the light brown jacket who, who had been behind me and kind of talking to me, and I could tell that he wasn't a mental health expert or a clinician or anything because I felt like I had talked. I'd been in and out of hospital more than half a dozen times. I knew what they all sounded like, it felt like. <laughs> this guy was just talking to me, like just a regular guy. And, and as he did, it kind of relaxed that perceptual, um, those perceptual blinders that I had been on. And that's when I noticed that the police had arrived and everything else. Um, but when he pulled me off the bridge after I let go and, and I dangled over the side of the bridge until he pulled me back, they sent me off to the hospital. Uh, I'd already been there. You know, that was the place where everybody knew my name. And they kept me for, I think, 24 hours, discharged me uh, without any real follow-up care. But it was the last time I ever tried to kill myself because I was struck with that image that you just said of these two strangers uh, who are watching the exact same situation unfold in front of them. And they each had very different options. Um, or, or they made very different choices. One chose to be on the sidelines and shout out to me and, and push me over the edge. And this other guy chose to have my back and literally to reach out and save my life. And uh, I realized, I think in that moment, in a very small way or in a catalyzing way, that I could be like that stranger who saved me. That, instead, that I could make a different choice 
than stand on the sidelines. I can choose to have people's back and to reach out. So, uh, you know, over the course of the next dozen years or so, that's was, was kind of my, my um, archetypal uh, savior uh, in my mind that shaped who I was and, and informed my decisions. And then about, uh, I think it was 13 years later, I had done the TED Talk. I share the story about the stranger in the light brown jacket who saved my life. And I just had it bubble up inside me that I didn't even know if this guy was real. Uh, that if he, you know, maybe it was just because my mind had created so many other things in my head. Maybe it created this angel devil dynamic over my shoulders just to, to give me a narrative to make it all make sense. I didn't know. Uh, so I figured I'd find out. And by that point, part of my advocacy has always been public facing. Uh, so I developed a lot of relationships in television and, and news media. Uh, so I went on uh, Canada's most watched uh, morning news program a few days later. Uh, asked for the public's help in finding this stranger who I just knew he was wearing a light brown jacket sometime more than a dozen years ago. That's all that I knew. And he saved me off a bridge. And much to my surprise, <laughs> within about an hour of this thing uh, go, being aired live across Canada and then picked up across the US and UK and worldwide, I start get, getting messages from people who said they knew who I was talking about. My God. And then it actually turned out that uh, somebody who said, I think he said he was his brother-in-law, said that the stranger had actually seen my TED Talk for the, just for the very first time a week before I went on national television to look for him. And a week before I asked for the public's help in finding him, he'd already written me a letter in case someday he ever found me. Now, I don't know if I believe in the universe, like working in mysterious, but I've got an awful lot of evidence to support it. So they, they send me this letter anyway. And um, you know, I, I flick on, I, I flick on my uh, camera on my iPad and I record myself reading it. Cause that's what normal people do. It really. <laughs> um, and his very first words to me, and I will say also, if you ever want to see a, a video on YouTube of a guy really ugly crying, you can go and look up this video. It's still on there. Cause in his, his very first words to me were, hi, Mark, my name is Mike. And knowing that this stranger who had, had always just been a, a vague memory, uh, had a name, meant that he was real. And if he was real, it meant that my story was real. And that was incredibly validating to know that somebody else saw me in the deepest possible sense. Uh, and I read the letter that he sent to me and I knew I needed to meet him. We, we brought him up. We um, flew Mike up to, to Toronto and uh, I said to him, uh, that I didn't know how to thank him. I mean, how do you thank somebody not just for saving your life in one moment, which he did for me, but for actually giving me my whole life ever since. I mean, he'd been my role model in my mind for, for all those years. And the best thing I could do was to uh, show him the life that he gave me, right? That wouldn't have been possible without him. So I introduced him to my wife and to my then two-year-old little boy and uh, now he's my second little boy's godfather, and uh, he'll meet my my one and a half year old little girl soon. <laughs> and I I showed him where I worked, and and brought him to some of my favorite restaurants, and showed him all the life that I never would have imagined possible when he first met me uh, on the edge of a bridge all those years earlier. And and it was all because of him. I what a what a phenomenal what a phenomenal story. Um, I want to ask, I want to ask a million things, but I want to ask about just in your, in your most basic terms for, for all the listeners who don't understand, um, 
when they talk about depression, when people who've not experienced it talk about depression, they talk about depression like depression's the feeling. Mm-hmm. When actually what we know clinically is depression is brain chemistry. Your brain chemistry is depressed. The feelings are sad, hopeless, things like that. How would you describe both depression and anxiety, things that you said were definite precursors to your ideation, to your um, tendencies around suicide? How do you des- how can you describe what it's like to be depressed? Yeah, you know, for me, um, I, there's no question that the brain chemistry is a piece of it. However, I'm I'm always cautious about over. Um, estimating that influence. Your brain chemistry is responsible for everything. You can see everything in your brain. You can't see if it doesn't go through your brain. <laughs> so that's the filter through which we do, we experience everything. Um, you're, you can also see your happiness and your change and your learning in your brain. That's the whole point. Um, so I think for me then, the way that I try to explain what it's like on the inside uh, is that there's these three parts, this biopsychosocial, or you got your neurological, bi- biological piece. You also have your cognitive biases and your and your psychological makeup and your experiences. You know, as, as Gabor Mate says, uh, that we need to stop asking what's wrong with people and instead start asking what happened to people. That's an incredibly important part. Uh, and then your, your in, environment around you is what that speaks to, that uh, we know that you can be the most neurologically sound person in the world. And if your environment is mentally unhealthy, you're probably going to experience mental illness. So there's this complex interplay between those three factors. But the way that I think of it too, is that, you know, people sometimes don't understand the difference between sadness and depression. And is it a chemical difference? Maybe. Um, But I'm actually more inclined to think that it's more to do with the stuckness in the emotion your ability to, uh, to, to, to come out of that place. That's why we can't say just snap out of it because neurologically, psychologically, socially, there's something keeping us stuck in that place. That's what, it's the persistence uh, that is the illness, not necessarily the quality of the, the uh, feeling itself. There's no wrong feelings. There's nothing wrong with sadness. There's nothing wrong with extreme debilitating sadness. Where it becomes clinically significant, however, is that length of time and whether or not your your coping mechanisms are A, effective, uh, and B, doing anything to, to get you out of it. So for me, it's, it's all about the, um, the length of time and your ability to cope, uh, not necessarily the emotions themselves. Your book, So-Called Normal, is coming out soon, January 12th, uh, 2021, for those who are listening to this podcast down the road uh, should already be available. Want to make sure it's available on all kinds of platforms. I can get it on Amazon. I can get it on my Kindle, all that type of stuff. Yeah, it's everywhere. There's an audio book. It's at Barnes and Noble. It's at, uh, it's available currently uh, for pre-sale and then for later listeners for sale. Uh, and I think in more than 25 countries worldwide at most major retailers. The, the, the purpose behind the book, you've done so well with social media, uh, with, with your own online presence, uh, being a go-to consultant expert on the conversation around suicide and suicide, uh, suicidal ideation. Um, why the book? What's, what's in the book that we haven't already been able to, to connect with Mark around? Yeah, you know, for me, I think when I did the TED Talk, it was most salient for me. Uh, where people thought that that was my whole story. 
And I think that that's actually really problematic when you're trying to raise mental health awareness, when you reduce people down to specific moments, sometimes even the worst or hardest moments of their life, that my story really isn't about how I tried to kill myself. It's not even about how I tried to kill myself a lot of times. My story is about how I didn't <laughs> and the lead up to that and why I felt that way. That's my story. It's the, the, the incident on the bridge that got so popular in that TED Talk. That's a very minor, I think, part of my story. So that's partly why I wanted to do the, the book. The other piece, too, is that I really think that if we wanted to, to move the needle in a, a significant way on suicides, uh, we need to reconceptualize how we think about it. Suicide prevention, an effective suicide prevention strategy, doesn't involve just lining up ambulances at the bottom of the bridge and waiting for people to jump. It involves going way further upstream and understanding the factors that brought them to the bridge in the first place. So that's on the extinguishing of, or at least mitigating of risk factors. Then there's the other side of it too. It's not enough if you want to uh, conquer depression or suicide, mental illness generally. It's not enough just to eliminate all the bad stuff. You'll never realistically be able to eliminate all the bad stuff that people experience. That's normal. So then instead, how can we balance out the other side of the equation? How can we build up the positives? How can we give people hope and motivation and resilience? Resilience isn't about um, avoiding everything that bothers you. It's not even about having not having really terrible experiences and times. Resilience is about how you rest, recharge, and repeat. And you do it again and again. It's like going to the gym. Your resilience muscle gets stronger the more you work it out. You know, and respecting your limits, respecting your boundaries but it's not about avoiding adversity altogether. So I think that's why I wanted to do the book too, is to show people that you can live through incredible adversity uh, and that it really comes down, I think, uh, to this beautiful idea in dialectical behavior therapy and in, and in mindfulness of acceptance and change. That you might not like what happened to you. You may wish that it hadn't happened. You may wish that it never happens to anybody else, but it happened. Uh, and you have to accept that because it happened. It's just a fact. You don't have to cling to it. You don't have to judge it. You don't have to create the friction that comes with wishing why me. You can just accept it as it is uh, and then let it go from you. I think that's been key to my own recovery. And, and that's part of what I wanted to show through the book too, that it's possible to move on. From a, a very practical standpoint, someone who loves someone gets told that the someone they love wants to hurt themselves, wants to end their life. What is the first response? Connection. It's always connection. Connection and love. I mean, once we fall into this trap of trying to fix other people as though, as though they're a broken down car on the side of the road, maybe there's nothing wrong with them. Maybe they're seeking that love and connection to break them out of the isolation to, that makes them think that they don't deserve to live. You know, and it might be harder to actually connect with a person because that's the symptom. That, that's one of the core symptoms. You block other people out. But attention is driven by relevance and salience. So make your connection with them relevant to their life. Find things in common. Make it salient. Make it obvious. Don't assume that people know that you love them. Tell them that you love them. And if it's a teenage boy, they're going to say, oh, mom or dad or whoever, don't say that. That's embarrassing. Don't stop that. Or no, you don't or whatever. They'll find all kinds of fireworks to deflect with, but they'll still hear you. So I think that focus less uh, on trying to uh, fix that person and focus more on building your connection and your relationship and tearing down the walls of fear and isolation that keep people trapped in their depression. 
as a clinician, you have a clear line and understanding about the difference between venting and intent. Are you comfortable educating family members on where that line is? Well, I always tell people, if, you're, uh, if you even have just a bad feeling in your gut that somebody might be suicidal, ask them. Ask them directly. You won't give them the idea. You know, nobody gave me the idea to kill myself. Lots of people gave me the idea not to tell anybody. Don't be one of those people. Ask them directly. Are you thinking about killing yourself? You don't need to hedge around it. Are you thinking about hurting yourself? Or are you thinking about doing something wrong or bad or stupid? That's all judgment. Just get to the point. Are you thinking about killing yourself? Uh, if they say yes... That's okay. Most of the time, I've found that people are afraid of asking that question because they feel awkward uh, and because they're afraid, what if the answer is yes? Then what do I do? I don't know what to do. I'm not a doctor. That's okay. There's other experts out there. You don't have to know everything. If somebody says that they're thinking about killing themselves, treat it seriously. If you're qualified to do a proper risk assessment or if you've had that kind of training, uh, then great. You can run through some of those steps, you know, try to identify if they have access to means, uh, if they have an actual plan, or if it's a kind of an amorphous intent, um, uh, uh, figure out uh, how impulsive maybe they are, or if they're currently using drugs or alcohol. You know, these can all be risk factors at a, at a bit more of an advanced level. But even if you have none of that, even if you're just somebody who loves them, they say that they're thinking about killing themselves, uh, you can have a conversation with them about how they need emergency medical intervention. Uh, you wouldn't walk, I hope, you wouldn't walk by somebody having a heart attack or a stroke on the sidewalk um, that um, a suicide uh, emergency is a medical emergency. So, you know, I, I, I think that there's uh, mixed feelings about calling 911. I think that's the type of thing that you can have a conversation with that person. When I was working as a clinician, nine times out of 10, they would go to the hospital with you or they'd talk with you or they'd contract for safety. Like that, that's usually a last recourse. But that said, don't be afraid to use that if you need to, but do it smartly, you know, that is to call emergency services. Um, this is where the person is completely unwilling to go themselves. Uh, you have a conversation with the dispatcher. Look, they don't have any weapons. Uh, they're safe. They're, you know, but they do need immediate help because we've seen so many examples, especially in racialized populations of those kinds of calls going the wrong way real fast. Um you can even specifically request for a crisis intervention team instead of police or a plainclothes officer, for example. There's lots of different ways you can do it. But at the end of the day, uh, doing nothing is not enough. Even if you don't know what to do, doing nothing is not enough. There are experts out there who can help. So have the conversation, uh, see what kind of help that person needs and wants. And if at the end of the day, you don't believe uh, that they're able to keep themselves safe, then you can find other people to help you to support them. Is there any burning uh, things that you absolutely want to get on the show before we sign off and do our wrap up? Um, anything you want to make sure gets mentioned? Well, I definitely want people to understand that recovery from mental health problems and illnesses is not only possible. You know, we, we hear that tagline in the mental health space all the time. Recovery is possible. I would actually go a lot further than that. I would say that recovery is expected. Recovery is likely when people get the help they need. All you have to do is look at the data. We have evidence-based treatments out there. The problem is that people are not getting access to those treatments uh, or they're not getting, or if they do get access to the treatment, it's in such a watered down and uh, eclectic, I'm making air quotes, way that it's actually not, not uh, even the original treatment anymore. Um, so I think that we need to do a much better job uh, of developing a more comprehensive, more targeted, stepped care uh, version of mental health care in, in our countries. 
that helps people to get the kind of help they need, the amount of help they need, the level of help they need, where and when they need it. We know that when we do that, we can prevent suicide. 100% of suicides are preventable. Uh, if only we can access the people early enough uh, to get the help that they need. So that's what I, if you're a person struggling, uh, you need to know that that uh, it sounds trite to say that it'll get better, uh, but it really can. You have to do the work. Nobody's going to do it for you. Nobody's going to inject recovery into you. Um, but when you get to the other side of the mountain, I really firmly believe, having done it myself, that it's so much more beautiful had you never climbed the mountain to begin with. Like you just value so much and you become grateful for so much because of your struggle. I'd never want to live through again what I lived through, but I wouldn't be who I, who I am if not for who I was. And I'm incredibly grateful both for who I was and for who I am. I noticed on the YouTube video of your TED Talk that the comments are filled with two primary uh, responses. Number one is people who are so grateful and thankful for what you've put out, for bringing light to the conversation, for um, pulling this out of the the shadows and saying, we're going to talk about this. Everybody grab your belts and hang on. And the others are people reaching out, dropping the one-liners, dropping the, the ideation bomb, saying, I don't know if I can do this anymore, on and on. And again, with some of those comments, watching people comment back to them, here's a, here's a phone number, here's a, you're in a place in your work of constantly dealing with people who are teetering. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, how do you respond? How do you, how do you, I don't know, how, do, how do I even ask this question? What do you do with that life and death conversation on a daily basis? Does it wear you down or is part of your life just being out there on these front lines, showing them that there's still hope? Yeah. You know, I think it used to be much more difficult for me, especially right after the talk went out and went viral. Um, and I still, and especially then, but still get messages from people all over the world telling me their story, telling me they're at imminent risk. And I've had to directly intervene in a few cases where I'd have to, you know, figure out where the person went or, uh, or report them to local authorities because they would say, you know, I'm on top of a building about to kill myself kind of thing. And I'm not just going to leave that go. I have, a, I have a conscience, right? And we're going to intervene. Um, but over the years, I really started to, I think, through my own self-care practice, um, really draw clearer boundaries between where I end and where they begin. I will do everything in my power to help somebody, uh, to give them hope, to, to refer them to resources. But I'm also very clear with people. I'm not your counselor. I can't be your therapist. I can't treat you. I'm A, not qualified to do that. Uh, and B, because of the the distance and the disconnection, disconnect here on social media, it wouldn't be ethical or right. You deserve uh, somebody who can help you properly. And and I can't do that if I'm only able to respond, you know, once every 12 hours or, or if it's the middle of the night here in the morning there. So I'm very upfront with people of what I can do and what I can't do, uh, what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do. Um, and also uh, to be able to provide them with resources uh, locally. Uh, you look, not everybody likes that, but that's okay. They're on their own journey too. And I had to realize very early on that I am not the Messiah. I can't save everybody's life. And if I were to try to do that, uh, I would completely exhaust and, and spend myself 
at the expense of everybody else. And, and I just can't do that. So I help people as best I can with the content that I put out there, with the conversations that I have, while also recognizing my own limits and being totally upfront with people about that too. How are people going to follow up with you? They, they've watched the podcast, they've read, or I'm sorry, watched the YouTube video, they've read your book, they've heard your uh, so-called normal podcast. How do people stay with you on a weekly basis? I'm very active on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, everywhere else, at Mark Hennick. Uh, that's M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. Uh, and my website is markhennick.com. I hope that when people pick up the book, they're going to read more about me than I've ever disclosed, like <laughs> by a lot. Uh, so I hope that really gives people a better um, window into my, into my head and into my experience. And I really love to hear from people uh, about the book as well. Mark, thank you so much for being on on Beyond Risk and Back. I think what I've enjoyed most about you is getting to know about your life and not just about your almost death. Uh, and I and I'm really looking forward to receiving my copy of the book. I, this is one of the the perks of being a a, a podcaster is I, I've got an entire bookshelf of all of these books of these amazing people who've had these incredible redemption stories and triumph stories. But watching what people do with their life after, um, you're one that that I really have enjoyed watching and getting to know in a very short amount of time. I've consumed as much of what you've done. Uh, the CNN article you mentioned, I had it up and read it. I get like, it's it's really wonderful to be a, a satellite to your planet. So thank you very much for being on the show. I know this is going to support a lot of people. Thank you so much, too. It was a really great conversation. I always enjoy when I can have, answer questions that I've never answered before. So you're great at what you do, and thank you for having me. Uh, thanks so much. Huge thanks to Mark Hennick, my guest today. What a phenomenal show. Get his book, So-Called Normal. It's available for pre-order right now. It's available worldwide starting on January 12th, 2021. I would like to thank Deepin Productions for the incredible music and producing of this podcast and to Your Cause Consulting who make sure that the right people get this podcast and get to access the information therein. Parents, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third because in that way, we'll do our best work with our children. I'll see you next week.